You're listening to Sound Opinions, and later in the show, we're going to talk with Amanda Sewell about her book on electronic music pioneer Wendy Carlos. That's something to look forward to. But first, we've got some new music to review. Welcome to my bachelor pad. I stay here when things get bad and I just want to get away send the kids out sad to play and do that is a track called Dead Writer from the new Lydia Loveless record Daughter her first album of new material in four years she grew up in rural Ohio and released her debut album in 2010 recorded when she was only 15 years yeah, old yeah. Uh, so you could call her a prodigy and I don't think that's far-fetched no. I, I actually think that uh, and I know you agree Jim Lydia Loveless is one of the best songwriters of the last decade we had her on the show uh, number 348 she mm-hmm. talked about her love of music and a hooked on sonics in in 599 yeah, yeah we've been with her from the beginning so that solo debut she felt like it, w- it was manipulated by the producer to sound like somebody she wasn't and subsequently she made a series of records with uh, Chicago-based Bloodshot Records that really put her in the conversation of a great songwriter. And then in the time since then, she uh, broke up with her husband and bandmate, Ben Lamb. She broke up with Bloodshot Records. Mm. And then she went through a bout of depression. And out she comes with uh, with Daughter that sort of documents uh, that period in her life. And uh, let me tell you, she did all the heavy lifting here. She wrote she sang, she played most of the instruments, she produced, and then she put it out on her own label. This is the album Daughter. Here's a track from it, Love Is Not Enough, from Lydia Loveless on Sound Opinions. Talk to me, tell me how it feels to always see everything in a major key when I'm drowning in ennui. Cause all Try to conjure up a little sun for you And when it doesn't come You ask why the sky ain't blue And things show no sign of looking up Love is not enough I wonder if it ever was I shouldn't have That is Lydia Loveless, Love Is Not Enough, from her fourth proper solo album, Daughter. Barely 30, Lydia Loveless just keeps getting better and better and keeps living more and more life, all of which goes into her songs, not in a self-centered way, but in a way that uh, embraces issues in the world. You know, the title track of this album, Daughter, is, is a fascinating piece of writing that I don't think I've seen before in popular music. She is taking on um, the self-professed allies of strong women. Mm-hmm. Men, you know, who say, well, I understand. I'm the father of a daughter. Right. And she's telling them in no uncertain terms, hey, that ain't enough. What is my body worth to you without your blood in it? Without your blood in it is my story. 
Wow. Okay. Uh, you know, in other words, she is telling us practice what you preach, live it. Uh, but she's not sparing herself some some real introspection here, uh, as she says in another song. She has been through the ringer, mm-hmm. um, and and again, it's it's not dwelling in in the tough times. It is talking about what she's coming out of it with, and you know, you said uh, writing uh, the songs all herself, recording, uh, producing herself, um, writing on piano for mm-hmm. the first time. You know, she has has been a, a, a guitar based singer songwriter. I think the shift in in instrumentation it's not like a piano all over the album it it sounds like a progression naturally of where Lydia Loveless was happy birthday make a wish I know this isn't really how you want to celebrate that mix of ferocity and that heartbreaking uh, voice, you know, not for nothing. A lot of times, it's almost obligatory. Compare it to Loretta Lynn, compare it to Patsy Cline, or just quote Richard Hell, a guy who is a poet who says the only uh, songwriter he's encountered in recent years whose music makes him cry every time Mm -hmm. is Lydia Loveless. Right. She's she's a very uh, nuanced singer, and I think that's the thing about her music that has most impressed me how more nuanced and more subtle in a way her, her writing has become and better uh, because of it. Not that she wasn't brilliant from the start, but she's just evolved so much over those albums. Uh, it's stunning to see. She's not playing to formula. She's playing to what am I feeling now? What is the best way to present this, not only lyrically but sonically? And the the textures on this album are just gorgeous. Uh, some of the arrangements are are beautiful and they sort of uh, balance the fact that these lyrics here's a woman who's always sounded older than her years yeah you know she sounded mature when she was 20 you know and now she's on the you know in the in the 30 range and she um, is bringing a sense of maturity to these lyrics that most singers could only dream of the whole idea is that you bring this level of experience and it gives you a toughness even when you're being tender it's a voice that says, I love you, but I can't stay in this relationship because it's killing me, it's killing us. Some people don't want to see the truth uh, in their lives, and so they avoid it. And she's saying, no, I'm going to go right at it. I'm going to go right at it, I'm going to tell you exactly how I feel in this moment. It may be hurtful, it may be make you uncomfortable, it may be inconvenient, you know, the inconvenient truth, but I'm going to tell you what it is. And I, I think that in a track like the one we just played, Love Is Not Enough, Wow. I wonder if it ever was, I shouldn't have to break you down to build me up. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. love is not enough. And I, I, I think it's an incredible sentiment delivered in, a, in the voice of a songwriter who just keeps getting better and better. track called Watch Your Step from the third Disclosure album, Energy. Uh, you may or may not recognize the voice of Khalees on that song. Khalees. Because it is sort of filtered through some <laughs> some filters, you know. It's, it's not, it doesn't sound exactly like Khalees, but she's on it. And that's, uh, that is a gambit that uh, Disclosure, uh, this duo from London, uh, Howard and Guy Lawrence, two brothers, have done throughout their career. They have blended name vocalists in with their 
uh, sonic tapestries, for lack of a better word, because what they're doing is they're coming at it from a rock perspective, a band perspective, and then they became DJs. They came in th- sort of through the whole back door of the uh, electronic dance movement and put it on the map for a lot of people. That 2013 debut album, Settle, really was a signature album for a new generation that was just being attracted to this whole EDM thing. Oh, yeah. And what made Disclosure succeed was their ability to combine the dance club vibe with pop music. Mm -hmm. They took their time making this one. It was a five years in the making record, following up two very successful records, Settle and then Caracol. Here's a track from the new Disclosure record. It's called Dua, Mali Mali, as sung by the great Malian singer Paramara Diawara on Sound Opinions. was Dua, Mali Mali, with Fatumata Diawara. Great vocalist from Mali, Greg, you point out. Uh, there's there's artists uh, here from uh, Cameroon as well. There's a couple of Chicagoans. We have rapper Common and Mick Jenkins. And you know, you had me at Khalees, right? <laughs> I am a huge fan. Been a huge fan since Milkshake. Khalees was on our show, episode 454. I think this is the album, the third proper album from Disclosure, Energy, where they cement their position uh, as super producers, sonic craftsmen, uh, collaborators par excellence on the level of, on one hand, Daft Punk, and on the other, Neptunes. Because, you know, as far as uh, electronic dance music uh, or funk soul oriented pop goes they're they're right in the middle mm-hmm, between right. between the neptunes and daft punk um you know the invention is just incredible and the guest shots uh never take away from what they've created in terms of an incredible uplifting party album you know some people were questioning uh, the producers the lawrences greg whether they should put out a party album in 2020 some mm-hmm. dire times but yes i'm glad they did You know, and, and I want to give a shout-out for all the impressive guest slots and all the great uh, in-your-face dance pop wonderfulness. Um, I'm really impressed by the two kind of ambient uh, songs that they call interludes. Mm. In particular, Thinking About You. It's only two minutes, but you know what this is? This is the best kind of symphonic, swelling disco track since the great Barry White's Love Unlimited Orchestra. Whoa. It made me literally go and pick out my, my four-CD Best of Love Unlimited Orchestra record. It's true. 
It's it's great. That's quite a claim, Jim. I have to say, I'm stu- I'm stunned that you say <laughs> say that about Barry White. But that's awesome. Listen to it again. I you know I I don't know if I put it in the Barry White category because I was just listening. Actually, I was just listening to some Barry White over the weekend. I'm well, going, there's no there's damn no, this guy could orchestrate. There's a song. no Barry in it, right? But right. but it is it is resonant of the orchestra. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. And, you know, I also like the change of pace there with Common, you know, coming yeah. in at the end of the first disc proper. There's like a bonus disc on this record. Yeah, like well. nine more songs on the bonus and disc. it's kind of like the chill-out moment in the record, you know, uh, which is cool. Slipped into a reverie, I can see a better me. Things that's heavenly, like love and melody. I love the incorporation of more of these uh, African singers in, in, in the music as well. These guys have been pulling these influences from all over. And I remember when they first hit in the uh, electronic music realm, there was a lot of, you know, backbiting saying, hey, these guys aren't purists at all. You know, they're, they're kind of interlopers in our world. What are they doing here? It's a and catty world. It, it really is. And, you know, they're basically saying on this record, we, we really don't care, because, and neither does our audience. Because yeah. for their audience, all this music was new. When that whole EDM wave hit, yeah. they didn't have the history of house music or techno at their fingertips. They were all about, hey, this is cool pop music. And they've made pop music for this decade uh, as, as one of the very best duos at work. So it's a fine record for well, me, too. Well, and, and you know, when you, when you have artists like uh, Fatumata or Kehlani reaching different audiences, big audiences, how can that ever be a bad thing? Do you have thoughts on Disclosure or Lydia Loveless? Let us know on Facebook or Twitter or email a voice memo to interact at soundopinions.org. We'll have reviews on the new music from Flaming Lips and Ganser after a break, plus the story of Wendy Carlos. That's In a Minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago and distributed nationally by PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and we have two more new albums in our record review roundup this week. That is a little bit of the song Projector from the new album by a Chicago band called Ganser. Just look at that sky. Greg, I think I talked about this band as a buried treasure at one point, but this album is worth a full review. The group came together as a duo back in 2014, fresh out of art school. Keyboardist vocalist Nadia Garofalo and bassist vocalist Alicia Gaines. Uh, first album? came out in 2018, Odd Talk, and then we got an EP, and now we're getting this sophomore album, Just Look at That Sky. Um, you know, I share a rehearsal space <laughs> with Ganser, and I was I saw this band unloading their gear Saturday morning. I, you know, when I say share, it's not intimate. There's 400 bands in this space in Chicago, and I had to go up and just introduce myself. And um, they had come from a radio taping, and they're like, this is the first time we've used our van mm. in six months. We wish we were on the road. You think people would be excited if we brought this album out to them? I think so, and we're excited to review it. Let's play a track by Ganser. That's G-A-N-S-E-R. This is a song called Lucky. It kicks off this album. Just look at that sky. Thought you'd be more. Thought you'd be
That is a track called Lucky from the new Ganser album. Just look at that sky and what an album it is. You sort of tipped your hand, Jim. I think you like this record a little bit. I do too. Well, Greg, Um, usually we're reviewing big name (laughs) records, right? Uh, But we thought this was worthy of full review, even though it's a local Chicago band. Absolutely. Alicia Gaines and Nadia Garofalo, the singers in the group, uh, as well as the founders of the group, they both have this sort of deadpan style. And it sort of says to me, I'm not going to put up with your whining anymore. Oh, you no. Know? Oh, no. <laughs> and I love that. The guitars uh, sort of cover everything up in noise. And it's like you're in this minefield of things blowing up because that guitar playing is so <laughs> yeah. dynamic by Charlie Landsman. And yet they, the vocalists, remain cool in the face yeah. of this storm yeah. that's brewing up around them. I love on Lucky when Garofalo sings that line, hell of a day, kid hell of a day <laughs> yes well drink up sonny <laughs> well it's, you know? it's it's part threat it's part observational yeah. you know i mean the world's falling apart on projector those lyrics it's so profound how nothing matters let's talk about nebulous weather a climate of catastrophes that'll never get yeah. better and i mean it's it's dark and yet it's sort of sarcastic you know there's a, an element of cynicism and sarcasm in there that i really love you know, you hear that gang of four thing going on in, in Lucky, which I love. Uh, but there's also a, a sense of groove. That rhythm section's terrific. Uh, the minimalist electropop feel that you hear in a track like Shadowcasting. So they're blending these sounds. And then there's just a touch of goth. Because it's so dark, you know, it's just like there's a and I love I love the, all those different styles of music and they're blending them into really great songs. The one weird outlier here is that No Yes song, sort of a disconnected spoken word piece with kind of a loungy jazz guitar on it. There was nothing anyone could say that would cheer, that would cheer me. And I almost feel like that's a red herring, like, OK, we're going to. You're going to throw this out there. And then they bang you in the head again with the, with the closer, Bags for Life, where the keyboards almost give it an orchestral feel. Yeah. With a really gigantic guitar. So I love this record. I love this band. I love this record, too. I, I think this is the record uh, that I wish Savages had made as a third album. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of that kind of anger and directness and invention and art punk but but they are their own band i'm not saying they're copying anyone that stretch in the middle of the album it includes that song shadow casting you mentioned but also emergency equipment and exits and told you so it's sort of a new wave circa blondie in the heart of glass mode a little new new wave yeah You know, uh, they they are a group that is not afraid to take chances. That's where No Yes falls in. I'm just blown away by this album, and I hope when the touring world resumes, they can conquer it. Hmm. And there goes floating around your bed. Now all your friends are dead 
That is a little bit of Will You Return When You Come Down by the Flaming Lips from their 16th studio album, American Head. Amazing, Greg. Who would have thought the Flaming Mm. Lips would uh, still be going today after originally forming in Oklahoma City back in 1983? Wayne Coyne, of course, has been the auteur for all of those years. Michael Ivins still at his left hand on bass. And uh, Stephen Drozd, uh, been the real musical engine of the band since it broke through big in the alternative era. Remember, she don't use jelly. And continuing up to now, where he is essentially a one-man band, and then Wayne comes in and sings, at least in the studio. They're working again with Dave Fridman, who has helmed their most remarkable albums. And uh, we're going to talk more about where they are at with this. I think it's like the first proper album type album from the lips in a decade. American Head. This is a song called Dinosaurs on the Mountain by the Flaming Lips. It's Dinosaurs on the Mountain from the Flaming Lips' latest record, American Head. They are still at it. I don't think they've ever been cast as the next big thing, and yet they keep on keeping on, making some wonderful records along the way. At least when they're not collaborating with Miley Cyrus. And and some not-so-good records, it needs to be said. But uh, here we have the Lips returning to the mothership, so to speak. You may have heard that song, Do You Realize, one or 3,000 times over the last few decades. <laughs> They're back in that mode, that sort of melodic, sort of sad, melancholy uh, territory that that song explored so well in 2002. It was a gigantic hit. Uh, Wayne Coyne's voice seems very well suited to the, this, that kind of material, Very a fragile voice. This record is is very much in that mode, that sort of sad, melancholy mode. It has been a driving force in Wayne Coyne's life from the very beginning. I think he's been trying to get to this idea of wonder of the world, despite the fact that we are surrounded by ugliness and and struggle, and the human race is up against the wall most of the time, and we're still going to find wonder in it. And, you know, the mawkish end of this, it can become easily sort of like a bromide, like, oh, look, you know, smell the roses along the way here, you know, that kind of thing. You know, and this record could have easily been that, but this is what Wayne has been all about in, in, in his songwriting from the very beginning, I think. He just struggled to find a way to express that in a way that wasn't cliche. And I think now, in his late 50s, he's found a way to do it. He's just personalized this music in a way that I've never heard him before. Uh, Do You Realize was a song that still had that sort of, you know, coding, Yoshimi Battles of Pink Robots. It's in in a sci-fi setting. These songs are extremely personal. 
he's talking about, uh, for example, uh, you know, his, his older brother struggling with addiction and, and, and brother I and mother I've taken LSD and then Wayne getting robbed uh, while he was working at Long John Silver's. I didn't mean to die tonight But those robbers were so fast He's talking about these kind of moments from his adolescence, his youth, uh, when a lot of the brightness in his world was taken away, you know, just one by one by one, he started realizing, hey, the world's not, not everything it can be, and still somehow finding a way through it. So I was won over by this record. It's, it's, a, it's a, their most melodic record in probably a decade, but I, I like it most of all because of how not only introspective it is, but the vulnerability uh, that Coyne is, is exploring in a deeper way than he ever has in any of his previous records. Yeah, I ain't buying that. You hate it, huh? Uh, I hate it. <laughs> I hate it. I hate it less than the last four records. Uh, you know, the, the lips have been uh, on a straight shot into the cesspool. Uh, you know, the terror in 2013 and King's Mouth. And, you know, they've stopped caring about using the studio as an instrument and a vehicle to move forward. They are a little more serious in the studio here, again, working with Dave Fridman, their longtime producer. But they, they aren't covering new ground, Greg. If you look at the Lips discography... Yeah, they are, though. No, they're not. No, the, they're not, no, 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 The personal no. side of this, I've never heard oh, Wayne be oh, so... Oh, you've uh, never listened explicit. hard enough. Do You Realize is a song uh, about the death of his father. And, right, and it's but... quite explicit. Uh, you know, and even on the silly side, uh, Dinosaurs on the Mountain. Well, you know, two decades ago, you gave us Christmas at the Zoo. These lyrical themes have always been there. That story about him having to cower on the floor while uh, the Long John Silvers, where he was still a fry cook, robbed at gunpoint, and he could have died. He's told that a million times in a million interviews. He told it in my book. I know, but never in a lip- song. He has written songs. That, that reference never that so explicitly yeah that's only because he's that's running out of metaphors you know we still have plenty of aliens coming and him wanting to be I like superman what he's singing about though all right above and beyond the lyrics let us move to the music this is a uh a, you know one track album that is in the mid-tempo ballad phase the lips don't rock no more and just because <laughs> coin is now you know a member of uh, aarp doesn't mean he should be slowing down on the rock the only time this album really catches on groove wise is in the instrumental when we die when we're hot <laughs> Right, and it comes out of the mother, please don't be sad. I'm lying on the floor along John Silver. I'm sorry they shot me song. So, uh, you know, look, I, I think this is a band that ran out of artistic ideas and was reduced to singing Happy Birthday while people are in uh, plushy animal costumes and giant balloons <laughs> fall, you know, a decade. And that breaks my heart. Because I was one of the world's biggest Flaming Lips fans. I've gotten two dozen emails from the Lips Network. I still hear from because I was their biographer saying, you're going to finally be happy, Jim. They've come back. They've come back. They have not come back. I will never listen to this album for fun again. And certainly, I still consider Priest Driven Ambulance, Hit to Death in the Future Head, Transmission from the Satellite Heart, Cloud States Metallic, you know, Softball and Yoshimi to be masterpieces. 
Do you have thoughts on any of the albums we reviewed in this episode? Let us know on Facebook or Twitter or by sending a voice memo to interact at soundopinions.org. We're eager to get your listener comments on the show again. When we return, we celebrate electronic music pioneer Wendy Carlos. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. He is Greg Cott. And this week, we wanted to spotlight one of the greatest electronic musicians of all time, a true pioneer in the field, Wendy Carlos. That's right, Jim. Wendy created sonically inventive tracks from the late 60s through the late 80s using the Moog synthesizer. Not only did she turn classical music on its head, Carlos also composed some memorable original music for films. Let's jump into my interview with the author of the book, Wendy Carlos, A Biography, Amanda Sewell. Amanda, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thanks for having me. Well, I am a Moog synthesizer geek, you know, <laughs> and I, I just, I have a couple in the next room. You know, I don't know what to do with them other than make noises. And, you know, this name, Wendy Carlos, has loomed large as a giant for anyone interested in synthesizers. And yet the amount of information, the amount of reliable information out there about Wendy Carlos has always been incredibly scant. And now we have this fantastic Wendy Carlos biography that you must have spent several years on because you dive deep into her music, into the culture, into the uh, technical aspects of what she did that makes her so astounding. You know, one thing, Amanda, that people don't understand is how different it was in 1968 when Wendy Carlos made her debut with Switched on Bach, how different the synthesizer was as an instrument. Rather than Rick Wakeman or a progressive rock hero playing the keys, it was more like uh, Wendy Carlos was that Lily Tomlin operator character with patch cords, uh, plugging one from one hole into another to generate each note. And switched on Bach, while it is a collection of recordings uh, of pieces by Bach, every single note had to be recorded individually, right? Every note was a labor of love because you had to get the pitch, you had to get the timbre, you had to get the volume, you had to get the tone, the attack, the decay. And each one of those parameters required a different configuration. So literally every note, she'd have to plug and unplug and tweak and twirl and to get the sound that she wanted and then record it and then go on to the next note. <laughs> That's astounding. It, it, it took thousands of hours to make Switch Nonbach. Thousands. And the synthesizer itself wasn't always reliable in terms of its tuning. So she might restore her settings to get that C-sharp oboe sound, and then the machine had gone out of tune, so she'd have to, well, she said she sometimes had to hit it with a hammer. Yeah, I love that. I don't know if she was kidding or not. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure she wanted to <laughs> sometimes, but uh, so it was absolutely a, a labor of love and the countless hours she spent with this Moog synthesizer. It's just, I think it's unfathomable now to think that because I can just grab my phone and hit a few buttons and crank out some notes. 
for people making music today to think what was required 50 some odd years ago with with the grandparents of the synthesizer. Yeah. <laughs> You know, we are so used to today being able to look at a wave file and literally control sound uh, in a program like Pro Tools to see the sound. But she was manipulating every sound with countless parameters, and she was kind of a control freak. You returned several <laughs> times to her uh, quote that any parameter that can be controlled needs to be controlled. Yeah, and I kind of hear it in that voice, too. She Synthesis was a good fit for her because... When you have a human musician, you write out your sonata and you hand it to them, but then it's it's out of your control because that human musician might play it on a piano that's out of tune or that's too close to the audience or too far. They might take the tempo too slowly. Yeah. But with synthesis, the musician really creates the sound exactly the way that they want the listener to hear it. And apart from maybe volume, there's not a lot of things the listener can do to change the sound from the way that the composer created it with a synthesizer than to the way that they're consuming it as a listener. So Switched on Bach comes out in 1968, mainly because the, the label you know, had a, a campaign, Bach to Rock, and, oh, we have no Bach in our catalog, and, oh, here's this electronic uh, Bach thing. They're not expecting it. They're expecting a, a modest, uh, classical, interesting album, and it becomes a huge bestseller worldwide, wins her Grammys, brings her instant fame, and this is where the sad part of the story begins. Yeah, it brings fame to a person who didn't really exist. <laughs> Walter Carlos. That was the problem. Put out, yeah. <laughs> put out under the name Walter Carlos. And I didn't realize the timing, uh, you know, but but Wendy was already transitioning uh, when, when the album came out. Yeah, she, again, no one had any idea this album was going to be the success that it was. So she was um, undergoing treatment with Dr. Harry Benjamin in New York and a pioneer in the field of transgender yes, surgery. Yes, his book, The Transsexual Phenomenon, was published in the mid-1960s, and it was really the first sort of mainstream text uh, about transgender identity. And she was fortunate enough that she lived in New York at the time where his office was and was able to see Dr. Benjamin himself. But yeah, she was undergoing treatment when the album was released and had socially transitioned to female and the incredible success of this album was creating a demand for this Walter Carlos person who wasn't available, <laughs> who didn't exist. And so she was really caught in this bind because she wasn't ready to disclose to the world yet that she was Wendy Carlos because, you know, this was 68, 69. It just wasn't, it just wasn't safe for her to do that physically and, and professionally. Yeah. I mean, it just seems to me, uh, having a good friend who also made that transition and knowing other artists who did, it was such a different era. And, 
it just seems tragic. I mean, she would sometimes appear in public with fake sideburns and a mustache, and it's like, wow, you know, you're 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 the most important electronic musician in the world today, and yet you you do not feel that you can be yourself. It just seems so sad to me. And, you know, we're sitting here in the 21st century talking about this when we have Caitlyn Jenner on the cover of magazines and and yeah. Laverne Cox and, you know, and Janet Mock with best-selling books. And it was just so different back then, especially there were just no no famous transgender people who were just living their lives and happened to be transgender. And Wendy Carlos has talked about she didn't want her identity to distract from the music. The music itself was already very surprising and very unusual. And they didn't want to risk having the music's creator labeled as some kind of weirdo or some kind of freak, and then potentially that getting caught up in the music and having it just be some sort of circus show. Yeah. Well, let's talk about what was next. She had been recording original compositions even before Switched on Bach. The record company needs a Bach record. It gets this surprise hit. You know, she wants to put out original music next in 1969. They say, no, give us more classical music on the synth. And we get the well-tempered synthesizer, which now adds other classical musicians. It's not until 1972 that she breaks ground again with Sonic Seasonings, a record that is rightly called ambient. You know, we have the sounds of the seasons (laughs) recorded (laughs) organically and mixed in with her synthesizer compositions. How was it greeted and how did she see it? Did she see herself as as part of what would become the ambient genre? New Age, some people called it. She hasn't really talked about where she sees sonic seasonings in either in her catalog in her oeuvre or in the history of music i think it was an experiment Mm. at the time the album predates brian eno's music for airports by three or four years at least so it's regarded by some as proto ambient and I think maybe she's used the word ambient to describe it, but not in the capital A ambient genre category. Yeah, in the literal sense that she went to Central Park or wherever and recorded cicadas. I wish that music was more widely available because I think anybody who loved later works by, you know, Moby's Ambient or Aphex Twins uh, would say, wow, this is three decades earlier and this sure stands up. Seventy-two was a hell of a year for Wendy Carlos because this guy calls her up, calls Walter up, right? Stanley Kubrick. Well, he, he calls Wendy Carlos up. He thinks he's talking to Walter. <laughs> he thinks he, yeah, he, he right. He calls Wendy. She is Wendy Carlos, but he thinks he's talking to Walter because she is not publicly out yet. 
and taps her to record uh, some of the soundtrack of Clockwork Orange. She thinks she's recording the entire soundtrack. Uh, he uses only select bits and pieces because he's a, another control freak. This is this is a story filled with control freaks. Uh, but also she's screwed over, you know, really, in that what she thought she was signing on for wasn't realized, and it was only when she puts out her own version of what she had done for the film that we hear uh, all of her vision of that music. I think she was happier with A Clockwork Orange than she was with what happened with The Shining. I mean, The Shining was yeah. where she really, uh, Kubrick basically did to her in The Shining what he did with Alex North in 2001, A Space Odyssey, which was mm. that he commissioned an entire soundtrack. And then, well, Alex North, I don't think he used any of his soundtrack from 2001. Wendy Carlos, he did use the DS Ray, that opening in The Shining as they're driving up the mountainside. But and it is memorably it creepy, is, yeah. Yeah. But with A Clockwork Orange, Kubrick is well known uh, for his use of music in his scores and almost invariably when he would go into shooting a film, he would already know what piece of music he wanted to use in the scene. He he would often play recordings of particular pieces during the filming of scenes. And so he, he very much knew what he wanted. And so what happened with A Clockwork Orange was that he already knew which pieces he wanted to use. He wanted to use Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. He wanted to use Henry Purcell's funeral music for Queen Mary. So all that happened then was that Wendy Carlos was able to render those for him on the Moog synthesizer and give it that sort of eerie, futuristic sound that complements A Clockwork Orange so well. Mm. So she has said that he essentially got his to have his cake and eat it too with A Clockwork Orange because he still got all the pieces of music that he wanted, but with this sort of futuristic sound on the Moog that she was able to give. Although she did, she did have the original composition Time Steps that she submitted to him, and he liked it and, and used, I think, 90 seconds or so of it in the film. Okay, so the third significant soundtrack in Wendy Carlos's uh, canon catalog, uh, Clockwork Orange, A Better Experience Than The Shining. Number three was Tron. Now, before you tell us the story, I mean, you know, Tron, to me, as someone who loved, you know, 2001 A Space Odyssey and all those pioneering science fiction, you know, I mean, even Logan's Run, right? But Tron was a bad movie and, 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 and silly. It was like a video game on the screen. How does Wendy come to do the music for Disney's Tron? Well, originally they approached her because they just wanted her to do the electronic music part of it. They wanted to represent... 
the real world with uh, an acoustic orchestra, a human orchestra, as it were, and then the, the mainframe, the game scenario with electronic music. And so they asked her to do the electronic music. And she said, well, you know that I'm classically trained, right? That I that I know how to write for an orchestra, that I that I have the skills to be able to write all of the music. And they didn't know because, mm. you know, for 15 years she'd been known as this electronic music person. So she ends up writing all of the music for the film, both the music that's recorded by an actual human orchestra and then the music that she records with what she calls her LSI, Philharmonic, her digital orchestra. Eighty-eight is the last real productive year. We get Tales of Heaven and Hell, which she says on the cover, you know, this is scary music. Be careful. Don't listen in the dark. And uh, and Peter and the Wolf. Peter and the Wolf in collaboration with Weird Al Yankovic. There is no one who's going to work with Weird Al who, who, who doesn't have a sense of humor. It that entire album is genius and it is out of print. It's one that she doesn't own the rights to. I, I implore the label to <laughs> reissue <laughs> that. It's it, it's two pieces. It's Peter and the Wolf, Sergei Prokofiev's tale, where they use the narration, but Weird Al uh, embellishes it a bit. They add some characters in addition to Peter and the grandfather and the wolf. We have uh, Bob the janitor, for example. Uh, and what's the character that the accordion plays? That's Bob the janitor. Bob, Bob the janitor. It's got to be an accordion. <laughs> it's Weird Al. Yes. And uh, and unlike the sort of horrific ending of Peter and the Wolf, where the 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 duck is eaten, uh, they lighten it up by saying, "Don't worry, the duck has been reincarnated as Shirley MacLaine." Shirley MacLaine. <laughs> and the moral of the story is. Oral hygiene is very important. Make sure you see your dentist at least twice a year. The fact that so much of this music is not out there now, I feel bad that that we can't send them uh, to a place where they can catch up on it all. They're going to get these little snippets of 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 Wendy, and it just deserves to be heard. How how do you feel? You know, having devoted a book and years to to the research, how do you feel that people can't hear this music? What is she thinking at age eighty that this, you know, groundbreaking canon is just not available? It's definitely frustrating. Although I do want to give a shout out to libraries. I could not have listened to her entire catalog for this project without the help of libraries. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's incredibly frustrating to me and I know to many, many people out there, you just have to look in a YouTube comment section or Reddit and people are frustrated. I, I literally read a comment recently where somebody said, Wendy Carlos, I want to give you my money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, please take it. <laughs> well, and she's very litigious. If someone posts something on YouTube, they're going to hear from her lawyer, uh, Toot Sweet. Yeah, that's another thing a lot of people get surprised by. They love Wendy Carlos. They look and say, oh my gosh, none of her music's on YouTube. Here, I'm going to put this video up. And uh, 30 seconds later, they <laughs> they're yeah. hit with a <clears throat> stern request to take it down. 
But I think, you know, legally, she owns that music, and it's sure, within she's right. Yeah, it's within her legal right to ask for it to be taken down, which is frustrating, maddening. <laughs> well, yeah, because at a time again where I say where I'm contending, she's one of the great heroines of the last 50 years of music, uh, both for her musical accomplishments and for her personal transition. You know, there is a generation who would embrace everything about Wendy, and yet, you know, at 80, she she is uh, pretty much invisible. Do you think 20, 30, 50 years from now, will there be festivals devoted to these innovations and, and pieces of music that Wendy Carlos wrote? I hope so, but I, my fear is that as long as she's alive... Um, she wouldn't she, let it happen. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, because people might say something about her that she that she doesn't that she doesn't like. So one hopes, but it's sort of a macabre wish because I doubt that those types of festivals will be able to happen uh, if she's still alive to stop them. We have been talking to Amanda Sewell, the author of Wendy Carlos, a biography. I was fascinated. I hope this is a, a great introduction to a fascinating artist for everyone, Amanda. Thank you, Jim. Thanks for having me. Do you have thoughts on Wendy Carlos? Leave us a comment on Facebook, Twitter, or email a voice memo to interact at soundopinions.org and let us know. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we have an in-depth interview with uh, Kathy Valentine, who has a fascinating new memoir out about her ups and downs in life and her long tenure with the Go-Go's. Gotta love the Go-Go's. Download the Sound Opinions podcast wherever you get such thingies. Thanks, as always, to our supporters on Patreon. As we were making this week's show, we got the news that Eddie Van Halen has died. We will pay tribute next week with a Desert Island jukebox pick. Thanks, as always, to our producers Andrew Gill and Alex Claiborne.